Hey everybody, Sourdough here. Today, before we start the show, I want to tell you about our upcoming conference, the Not Real Art Conference on March 16th here in LA. It's a one-day learning event for artists to come together and learn, share, network, and grow. We're going to talk about protecting your IP, licensing your IP, and pitching your IP to Hollywood. Tickets are right now at 100 bucks. We got some great speakers, experts, artists talking. We got Human, we got Logan Hicks, we got Jorge Gutierrez, of course we got your boy Man One, and we've got experts from Hollywood and New York coming to talk about the law, talking about pitching to Netflix, all kinds of exciting stuff. So go to notrealart.com to get your tickets today. Thanks so much, now let's start the show. Hello, this is Siri and you're listening to my favorite podcast, Not Real Art. I live for this shit cause it's totally lit. Welcome to Not Real Art with Man One. Scott Sourdough. Oh, shit. You fucked up. I did. Scott. S- See, I'm, I'm telling you, it's been months, dude. We haven't done this in months. How dare you call me and, by, my, and, by my given name? Let's try it again. Yo, yo, yo. <laughs> Not Real Art with, with your boy Man One. And Sourdough. In the house. And sourdough, you know, that name is yeah. growing on me. I know well, it's not growing on me yet, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a third giggle in the background. I know our, our special guest today is probably wondering, What the hell? Like, I don't, what's the sourdough thing? You know, most people, you know, they're, they're curious. It's a very curious thing, sourdough. People think of San Francisco when they think of sourdough, and that has nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, you were wrong, weren't you? Yeah, I, st- I still don't understand it, but oh, uh, you know, you'll 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 get there. Yeah, I, I got you know, I'll give you time. There's but a podcast it, for that. There's a podcast. Yeah, what episode? I don't know. Whatever. Listen to that laugh in the distance. Who's that laugh? I don't know. That's a very distinctive laugh. This is like that that, that game show where uh, you know someone's behind there. Oh, like, right, 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 right. Can you name show? that laugh? Yeah, can you name that laugh? That's a good game show, actually. I like that. Well, you know, t- this episode is a special episode. We do have like a special friend with us today. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, I almost kind of want to to build the suspense, right? Because I mean, I don't know that we've ever had an Emmy Award winner on the show. I don't even know if we ever had a Latino on the show, except me. You know what? (laughs) Except me. Well, you know what? You know what I'm saying? I I can't. You know, I've been trying to push you to build a more diverse podcast. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I know. I what if you of all people? I just I hang out too. I hang out with too many white people. Jeez, yeah, and I'm one of them. So know. you know, I guess you got to diversify. Yeah, but I just want to welcome yes the one and only Jorge Gutierrez. Yes. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you. I'm, I'm super honored Dude. to be here. Okay, so sourdough. What is that like? Is that a white bread thing? Like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. Brown on the outside, <laughs> white on the inside. <laughs> Once you go sourdough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a sourdough cookbook. Oh. Okay. oh. I'm a published book author. And one of the books I wrote was a sourdough cookbook because I happen to be very good at making sourdough bread and sourdough recipes, right? But it's it's that's not the whole and, and story. That's, that's not even why. That's not even the whole story no. because the question is that you're probably wondering, well, why, how, right? What whatever compelled you <laughs> to bake some sourdough bread? 
Well, back in 91, I lived in the Arctic for almost a year off the grid, no electricity, no plumbing, no phones, no mail, no roads, no nothing. It just me and my fucking gun, <laughs> you know, like that was it, right? So sourdough is a huge component of your diet in that situation because you can make so many things from just your sourdough starter. You can make all kinds of bread and it replenishes. So as long as you continue to feed it, it's almost like a living organism. Oh, yeah. So it'll feed you for generations. I mean, there are sourdoughs that are generations old that get passed down. What? Yeah, it's true. So like your body's 50% sourdough at this point? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> well, it's crazy too because it has like all these other weird properties. Like you, like don't ever let it dry on something because it sticks like glue. So if you like got a – if you like I fixed my chair, the cabin, like the wood chair broke. I put some fucking sourdough on it. I'd be in the joint and no. let it dry and it glued it. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, yeah. Crazy. Is this, this, uh, this is real. not like white people folklore. Is it? <laughs> no. Well, it's white people folklore, <laughs> yeah, it but is, it's, but... it's based in reality, yeah. right? But there's a flip side tortillas, to it. Tortillas don't do anything. No, tortillas don't. <laughs> no. So in Alaska during the gold rush, the dudes that lived up there for more than one winter and became you know, kind of wise to the wilds and, you know, be able to live comfortably, they were called sourdoughs. Oh, right, man! This nickname is right? loaded. Yeah, it's got layers. It's got layers. Yeah. yeah, I know it's a layer sourdough cake. Enough about me, Jorge. <laughs> Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? I, I think you're one of the most fascinating white people I've ever met, <laughs> and I know a ton. <laughs> yeah, we're we're on average pretty boring when it comes to the sourdough. Jorge Gutierrez, you are here in my home. I feel like. Is this is a milestone in uh, in my family's life? You know, our nanny Dilma, she's a huge Book of Life fan, and she she almost broke out into tears when I introduced her to Jorge. Oh, she ago. seems super nice. She's too. awesome. Nan- uh, no, Dilma's fucking bomb. Love her. She's Aww. great. Yeah, man. Well, thank you guys. Honestly, I've never done an art podcast, so <laughs> well, neither have neither we. we so. <laughs> be gentle with me. You never forget your first time. So, so for the sake of context, I mean, it's 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 eight o'clock at night. You were nice enough to drive out here after a long day of work. How was your day, brother? Like, what was was it? Was it a lot of pain and suffering today? Was it a good day? Like, what was up? You know what it was? It was. I'm, I was super behind on a script for the thing I'm doing for Netflix. This is the last script that I had to write. And I worked all the weekend on it. And then I was so proud of it. And I turned it in on Monday to my my team. So my, you know, the other amazing writers and, and all the sequence directors. And I thought everybody was going to read it and just love it. And that was not the case. <laughs> everybody had a million suggestions. So these past two days, I was just swimming through suggestions but at the end of the day you know i'm the i'm the showrunner yeah so i get to say no i don't agree with this or i agree with that but then there's that little thing that happens to artists when you start doubting stuff and you you have to argue with yourself like okay why do i not like that is it because it's going to be a ton of work or is it because it's going to be better than what i thought of and i i that's when i try to break down my ego and i go take my ego out of it the thing is more important than me. So if that idea is better, I have to be willing to kill a baby to let this other baby grow. So that's what I've been doing these last two days. And today was was the day where I was like, okay, no more killing babies. Time to turn it in. So I'm super relieved. I feel like a giant, a giant weight. But yeah, I feel I feel 
you know, what we, a lot of the stuff we do is, especially when you collaborate, is you got to put your ego aside and, and look at the big picture. Well, what is the hallmark of good note giving? Like for you, like when people are giving yeah. you notes, like like what's a good note? What's a bad note? Like, Well, over the years, I've, I, I have to admit, my skin has gotten pretty thick. With that said, I want notes that help. Basically, they, they point out what might be wrong. And here's a suggestion on how to fix it. The worst notes to me are vague, I don't like this, and then no one can explain it. Or the super worst ones that I really, really hate are the ones that go, I did not like that because, I don't know, two years ago I got in a car accident with a red car and now I don't like that you have a red car in your thing. When they become very specific to the person because of a personal experience, because that's not the audience. <laughs> so, and by the way, I've gotten a ton of those where like my last boyfriend hated blah, blah, blah. So I hate him now. And so don't do that. And what does that have to do with it? I'm, in, I'm, into girl, I'm into girls now. So could you make right, a right, girl, please? Exactly. Right. So, and it's, a, you know, the Hollywood is very hierarchy based. So I'm always saying, I don't care where the note came from. If it's good and it makes the thing better, I take it and I try to make the thing better. The problem is when there's a ton of good notes, but they're all conflicting, right? That's the best problem to have, but it's still a giant problem. And then when you get notes from above you and they're terrible notes, that's the other problem. Oh, right. <laughs> so right. those are two problems. The most masochist way I approach it is I go, every note, no matter how good or bad, is an opportunity to make the thing better. That's like the Zen answer, but easier said than done. But okay. Especially when there's no time. Yeah. I mean, reckon. So how do you go about that? I mean, when you have good notes that conflict with each other and yet you still have to somehow synthesize and distill that i mean are you going through just one by one i mean i don't know like it's such a painstaking process it is a painstaking moment and i do go one by one and a lot of it is just gut right Right. because you go it's like cooking you go needs a little more of this but maybe maybe it's more of that it's such a it's like alchemy i feel Mm. you're sprinkling Mm, stuff magic it's very much magical because if anybody could engineer this stuff to be perfect every time then everything would be amazing and that's obviously not the case. It's super hard to make good stuff. But I would say it's just as hard to make shitty stuff. The hard work is a given. Yeah. So what's that other magic element? Would you consider, I mean, let me ask you a different way. What do you consider yourself? An artist, a director, a writer, all the above? You know, for me, is I'm an artist. Yeah. And there are artists who direct and there are directors who are not artists. And there's writers who are artists and writers who don't draw. So I, I to me, being an artist is all of those things. Uh, and I, you know, honestly, I didn't want to be a director. I wanted to make Book of Life. And I didn't want to be a showrunner. I wanted to make my thing. The job was the thing I needed to do to get the thing made. But the job was never the goal. And I think that's honestly been my my blessing and my curse so i don't really work very well when i'm directing or writing for someone else i work better when it's for a thing that i came up with right when did you first start writing 
I started writing in film and, school. And drawing. Tell me the both stories. Like. So what I learned early on in film school was, and this is a shitty thing to learn in film school, but basically in animation, uh, a lot of the scripts come from writers who don't like animation and are trying to go to live action or have failed to some extent and are trying to get out of whatever the bad thing is. So a lot of animated movies and animated TV shows, especially in, in feature animation, the stories basically get reworked in storyboarding and they get reworked by the artists. And I learned that in school and I realized I need to learn how to write. If I ever want to make my own stuff, I need to learn how to write because drawing was something I already did and I was natural. Sort of a, a thing that I knew if I the more I do it, the better I get at it. With writing, what hit me like a ton of bricks was everybody can do it, right? Everybody can write an email. Everybody can write. Literally, everybody can write. So how do you become a good writer? And that was the shocking thing I learned. There's no way to cheat it. You just have to do it. And you're going to be terrible for years. <laughs> and then you get good. And so that's what I did. And I sat in on screenwriting classes and I would try to learn. And my first stuff was terrible. You know, English is my second language. My father would make fun of me, like, you're going to write? And that's how I got started. I just started writing and writing. And then as soon as, you know, what happens in animation is you get put in a little box. And they go, artists can't write and writers can't draw. So what I ended up doing was I would get jobs as a, as a designer or as an artist. And I would talk to the story editors and cartoons. And I would say, let me write a script for free just to prove that I can do it. And sure enough, one day somebody read one of those and they said, that's, this is not as shitty as we thought it was going to be. <laughs> and that's how I got started. I started, I, and I always had a writing partner, especially when I started out. I said, well, I want to learn from someone who's done it more than me. And then eventually on our first TV show, I just would learn as much as I can from all the professional writers. But that led to me directing Book of Life. And same thing. They were like, you've never written a movie. Why would we let you direct a movie? And I said, well, pay me the minimum, the Writers Guild minimum to write the movie. And if you hate it, like, I'll minimize your risk. But but let me bet on me. So that's always been my trick. I'm like, I'll bring the risk down financially. But if this works, right. I win long term. That's right. That's right. Well, I mean, I was asking you that just kind of selfishly too, because you know, I've, I've illustrated my first uh, children's book, and it's been going phenomenal. Dude, you and, gotta write uh, now. You gotta write. Well, one. now they want me to write my own. Yeah, because Hell he, yeah. because I just illustrated it. I didn't write it, right? Yeah. And now they're like, okay, now we want your story, you know, and you got to write it and you got to illustrate it. And I'm like, awesome. And I'm like, now what the hell do I do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, of, one of the best things that happens in writing, I like to sort of think about it like this. When people ask you, how did you meet your wife? Right? Or how, what happened with your first fight? These are stories you've told yeah. hundreds of times, exactly. maybe thousands of times. Yeah. And every time you tell that story, you've edited it down. Right. To exactly. how people reacted, you trim all the fat, you get to the joke, you exaggerate the good parts. You know when they're going to laugh. You, you know minimize when they're gonna... the bad parts. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's writing. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been right. Re, you know, I thought it was bullshitting because that's, that's what I've always done. Well, <laughs> to some extent, I would say writing is professional bullshitting. That's right. Right. And writing is rewriting. Right. It's just get it out. It's going to be shitty. 
and then rewrite, 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 rewrite. How do you say the most with the least? Because in writing, writing long is easy. Writing short is super hard. Yeah, well, the thing is, the children's book is 32 pages. Oh, yeah. And Dude, you can do it. Come on. It's your story. Who knows your story better than you? <laughs> well, it's, it's which story, you know? Well, yeah, you got to that's, that's the part. Because I, I have like five different stories that I've already talked to the editor about. And I don't know which one to pick, you know, because I want to do one the first one at a time. And, you know, so, yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm like, oh, man, I don't know how the hell to narrow it down. Yeah. Shit. But, you know, what I love about, you know, Jorge, which talking about is like, I think a lot of folks might be, well, I don't know, maybe they're just sort of intimidated or scared or insecure or whatever about acquiring new skills, new tools. Like you said, no, I want, you know, as many tools in my toolbox as I can get. You know, I guess in music, they'd call you a, a multi-instrumentalist. I guess in the arts, you're a multidisciplinary artist or what whatever. What do they call me? Uh, you're a hyphen, they call you're me. You're a hyphen? Yeah. 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 Because you're this, hyphen this, hyphen this. You're the prince of animation. Well, I'm more like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm more like the El Chapo of animation. <laughs> <laughs> right making tunnels of love there you go <laughs> i like that better actually <laughs> but yeah it, you know with everything that with any art form there's no way to get lucky you just have to do the, the work that was an insight you got on your own there's something that you said about you know when you were in art school you figured out like you needed to learn to write it wasn't like your teachers at art school were telling you the oh, artist yeah. saying, none, of, like, none of my animation teachers said you need to learn how to write is it, I mean, but, but isn't that like a <laughs> because they did, i mean well they didn't teach screenwriting to animators but are they now no well see why not right i mean they should be i it, think it, is I, the point. they absolutely should be so i went to cal arts right? right so this school has a dance school film school theater school film school and art school right so this is the that i i might have repeated one of those but there's five art schools and they sell you this dream that when you go there you can take classes from all schools. Sure enough, when you get there, you realize, no, no, these are like, this is like Game of Thrones and all the schools <laughs> yeah. don't get along. Right, right. And they don't want to give credit to people taking classes. <clears throat> but I, I believe the brochure. So I would go, well, I want to learn acting. Yeah. I'm going to take the acting classes. I'm gonna, well, I want to learn writing. I'm going to take the screenwriting classes. And the teachers would say, well, you're not in this school. You can sit in, but I'm not going to give you credit. And I remember thinking, who cares about the credit? Oh, I want to learn. You want the knowledge. Yeah. You want the skills. Yeah. Like, grades don't matter. Right, it's right. what you learn that matters. So I sat in on every class. And then at some point, the teachers would go like, wow, oh, you're, you're doing more of the homework than the regular students in the class. You're serious. That's the other thing I learned in art school. There's a ton of rich, lazy kids. Yeah, right. And right. I love those kids because <laughs> thanks to them, I got to sit in, in in their classes. So that was, you know, that looking back, I, I, I kept thinking like I'm cheating the school because I'm getting all this extra knowledge <laughs> that I didn't pay for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it all, you know, it all made sense to me. Like, how can I learn to direct actors if I don't learn acting? How do I direct a movie or write? My stories, if I don't know how to write, and and the skills in animation, especially in LA, are so specific. You're a this, you're a this, or you're a this. That's it. But this idea, you know, I would look at my directors that I adored and admire, and I would go, well, well, they wrote on this, and then they art directed on that, and then they directed on this. They were doing multiple jobs in the production, and that seemed to me like, well, that's the way 
that's the way to do it. I was always that kid who I needed to see someone do the thing I wanted to do so that I can break it down and go, how do they get there? Okay, you know, Tim Burton or, or Brad Bird, all these directors have to go, well, the first they worked here, then they did this. Then, you know, no one comes out of their mom's vagina and they're ready to direct. Like, this is the thing that evolves and 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 especially skill-specific things like this. It's just doing the work. Right. And, and then I love lazy kids. Like, <laughs> I, and I talk about this all the time. Like, I when I got into school... I looked around and I realized I'm probably the least talented artist in my generation, right? And then I realized as I, because I, I study people, so I started studying the situation and I was like, oh my God, artists are such lazy procrastinators. They are brilliant at coming up with excuses to not work. I'm not inspired. I don't have the right software, the right you know, materials, the right, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. My girlfriend left me, my, you know, all that's any excuse to not do the work. And I remember thinking, that's how I'm going to compete. I'm just going to outwork everybody. Right. And any time. Like a I, true Mexican would like say. Like a it. true Mexican, right? <laughs> and, I, and I did this, again, in my head, I'm like, I'm cheating by doing this. Right. We would get an assignment, let's say a character design assignment, and I would do 10. And then I would curate and pick the best one. I wouldn't tell anybody I was doing that, but I realized the more I did stuff, the better I got. And so if I didn't have the natural talent, I was going to outwork them. Yeah. That's a great point. That's and, a great point. And, I, and hopefully it still works that way. But when I went to school, there was no internet. Yeah. There was no cell phones. Yeah. So I don't know how kids do it now. Yeah. So much distractions. Well, the other thing too is like, how can they still be complaining about you know, right? When I hear people complain about, oh man, you know, I, I can't get a gig because uh, blah blah blah. I'm like, dude, it's on your hand. You have you have a little device in your hand where you can tell everybody what you do, and market it and make money on your hand. Oh, but I don't know, blah blah blah. It's crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, I remember when I got out of school, yeah. I had to make physical portfolios yeah. that cost yeah. me. Yeah. Like I was like, I guess I, I'm not gonna yeah. eat all week yeah. just to make this portfolio. I had three. Dude, I, I had, had three two? that I sent out, and you have to wait for the, for yeah. the gallery to send it back to you, or and then and then the, the studios or the gallery would lose them, and you're right. like, "All right, that was like my yeah. car, yeah. like that's yeah. how expensive that portfolio was." Right, and now you just website right. free digital. Yeah, so yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm 44 now, so I, yeah. I look at kids now, I'm like, you guys have it so easy, and I'm sure, <laughs> you know, older people when I was a kid were saying like, "Look at you guys, you have color right. printers." <laughs> <laughs> right yeah ah oh, dude but anyway so that, so that that's been my trick in my right. career well but okay so i'm listening to this right i'm thinking like part of what we're describing is is humanity i mean majority of humanity is fucking lazy yep. and white right? i mean <laughs> lazy <laughs> well I, I mean there, there is something to be said about i'm from mexico city Right. right. So the way I when, see well, it. How old were you when you moved to uh, US? So I was nine years old when I left Mexico City. Yeah. My father said, you know, it's too much crime. The city's crazy. I want my kids to grow up in a safer environment. Yeah. So let's move to Tijuana. <laughs> 
<laughs> when Tijuana is more safe than Mexico City. Dude, this is 1984. Because <laughs> I was nine. This Tijuana at the time was the most dangerous city in all of Mexico. Yeah. And I remember asking my dad, like, Dad, why did you move us here? And he said, because here, when they kill you, they look at you in the eyes. <laughs> no shit. That's what he said. Yeah, he's like, Mexico City, they shoot you in the back. Cowards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, he said, by the way, yeah, I want to. Is your dad still with us? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah I want to yeah, meet him. I want to. Oh my god, my dad, my dad's such a character. <laughs> we need to have him on the podcast. Let's bring him over next time. <laughs> well, he doesn't speak English, so that, that that's not even perfect. That's so I don't even speak English. <laughs> but he, uh, he, put, you know, he would put the fear of God into me about that's all this true. stuff. Yeah. He was like, "You're gonna go to America. If you make shitty art, they'll deport you." <laughs> 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 oh man that's a motivator yeah that, that's, uh, that's awesome that was the motivation yeah. I, I was getting yeah. but i mean speaking about privilege and things you know growing up in mexico city i felt like if life is a video game coming from a city like that i was playing life in expert mode and hard mode as a little kid yeah exactly so, Every day you walk out and you're like, oh, yeah, I hope they don't kill any of my friends and I hope <laughs> I don't get robbed. Every day you live with those That's fears. Right. Yep, yep, yep. And so when you when you come to a place like this and you're like, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Right. <laughs> I can just focus on the stuff I like. Wow. So I was coming from a very different place. And then when I got to college, you know, I was 18. Drinking ancient Mexico is 18. So I was done drinking by the time I was 18. A lot of kids. This is the first time they lived out of their out of the house. Out of their house. Yeah. So they were. It was raging. Yeah, yeah, raging party time. Yeah, yeah. It did not make any sense to me. I right. was like, "Didn't you guys party when you were like fourteen and fifteen? <laughs> right. Get out of your system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Yeah. But yeah, I think that was another thing. It was especially at that time. I mean, I went to school in '94, so this is mid '90s. It was a boom in animation. Time Magazine published an article that said animation was the third best career in the U.S. Third best? Yeah. So... What year was that? Must have been 93. And Lion King came out. And so it was a, like, glut. And then in 97, 98, animation, especially 2D animation, died. And Toy Story came out right around that era. And so I got to see 2D animation die and CG animation rise. And there are people who've spent, you know, 15, 20 years learning how to become 2D animators that were now working at a grocery store. So that was, to be in school and to see that happen was eye-opening. And it was a giant reminder of what we learn in school will not guarantee us anything. We have to adapt, see what's happening out there. And if you don't adapt, you die. So I love that I got to see that. And that really changed me. So I was terrified when I graduated. I was genuinely thinking, if I go back to Mexico, so I did my BFA and my MFA, I had a full ride. I was super happy. But the way it works for foreigners is when you graduate, you get one year to find a job where a studio will sponsor your work visa. If you don't find that, you get sent back. So this is year 2000, I'm 25, and I was terrified. Said, if I don't find a job, yeah. I'm going to go back to Tijuana and be like the best animator serving tacos in, <laughs> in all of the border. <laughs> and then I remember my dad like sitting down with me, you know, class, this is my dad. And he goes, Jorge, 
if you don't find that job. And in my head, I'm like, he's going to say I can go back home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's going to nurture me <laughs> right, and right. help me out. He's like, if you don't find that job, you failed as a son. <laughs> <laughs> La neta. Yeah, he was like, all the hard work. Dude. All the hard work. Dad is my Everything you've done for nothing. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. What yeah. did your dad do? He's an architect. Right. And oh, as man. he likes to say, he has architected me to yeah. success. Right. Well, one, of, one of my favorite dad stories was, so I had a, you know, first time, I only had one son, but the first time I had a son, I sat down with him, tequila bottle. Right. And I was like, Dad, I'm going to be a dad. And he was like, mm, what are you going to do now with your career? And I was like, well, Dad, you know, now someone will depend on me. So I'm going to take less risks and I'm going to be more responsible. I'm going to do things that are safer. I'm going to do things that are for the good of the family. And he like he took his tequila and he sipped it. And this is literally what he said. He goes, huh? Did I raise a coward? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, oh, if this was a sitcom, I was like, yeah, that, I've seen God. that happen a million times. Yeah. That is, how, why did that work here? <laughs> and he goes, Jorge, any success, these words are tattooed on my soul. Any success you've ever had was because you took risks and you're an artist. If you stop taking risks, you're dead. Yeah. What kind of example will you be to your son wow. if you stop taking risks? If anything, now's the time to risk even more. Wow, that's awesome. Because the stakes are bigger. <laughs> I don't ever want you to say, I'm going to play it safe. <laughs> right, right. Dude. And yeah. then he took my shot and, yeah, he, drank it. <laughs> and he drank it. <laughs> Well, that's fucking dad, dad, man. Man. Yeah, he's the fucking man, dude. That yeah. was that was and and you know that stuff stays with you. Oh, and yeah, that's the stuff yeah. I want to pass to my kid. Oh yeah. Well, now was his dad like that? Where does he get that from? So his dad was he was the youngest in the family. He became the most successful of all his siblings. His dad didn't go to college. Was a uh, during the revolution for Pancho Villa. He was a telegraph guy. And the the famous story that he told us as you know growing up as a kid was. When the revolution was in the end, I guess they liked them, but if you left the army, they'd kill you, right? You were the, yeah. the factor, especially the revolutionaries. So they gave him a chest with all his stuff. He put it on his back and they said, run, we're going to shoot at you. And if you survive, you're free. And so he ran, he filled the chest full of books because he really, you know, he realized this is will stop the bullets. And so we grew up with this chest with all these bullet holes. Holy shit. And then he, my grandpa would love to say, like, the book saved my life. Go to school. Wow. <laughs> Fuck, dude. <laughs> we got to make a movie about this. <laughs> so that was, that was my grandfather on right. that side. Yeah. And then the grandfather on my mom's side was, like, a giant general. Same thing. Grew up with nothing. He, you know, basically eventually became the head of the Mexican army. So those were the examples as a kid. Like they had less than you and look at where they got. You're starting in the middle. Where are you going to get? Yeah. 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 No excuse. You have no excuse. <laughs> yeah. What about your siblings? So my sister is an art director in Rome. So we both studied art and she uh, married a documentary filmmaker. So basically art and Movies are kind of the thing in, in my generation. 
and my parents are super proud. But I know, I know my dad. You know, he went, he'll never tell me he's proud. Yeah, yeah. Of course Anytime not. you know when he saw Book of Life, he's like, mm, "It's all right. You're getting close." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. And then after after I made El Tigre and the Galodian, he literally goes, "Time to make a movie." <laughs> okay, I'm like, so you know how that was that. <laughs> okay, oh, so that's awesome. so okay, so I'm a dad, right? I got a yeah. son. I got a son who's two and a daughter who's six, right? And I catch myself all the time being saying like, that's so great, honey. You did so good. Oh, that's so great. And I realize, like, I don't actually believe that. Like, no, no, that that, that photo, that, that drawing is actually pretty shitty. You know? <laughs> well, come on. But, but, you know but, but, but this is the point, right? Like, how right. hard? I mean, you know, we're parents. You're dad. I mean, you're dad. We're all dads here. I mean, like, are we raising, you know, and you say nothing of, like, the stereotypes of the millennials and getting a trophy for just showing up and all that shit. I mean, are we raising a generation of pussies? Like, how hard do you have to be on your kid? to get excellence well see he knows my dad too your so, dad's a hard ass <laughs> my, my dad's like your dad well i mean by the way you know? that's a mexican dad it's a mexican dad right, yeah. right 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 it's like if i'm not tough on my kid he's gonna suffer yeah. so the suffering better come from me right. or the world's gonna beat the shit out of him right 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 so as he i mean he would say it to me as a kid he was like you might not like me but you're gonna be thankful for everything I'm teaching you. And the day I die, fucking to this day, he's yeah. like, the day I die, you will cry more than you've ever cried. I mean, well, because, you know, I mean, it's deep, right? Because it's like, I'm a father of two kids of color. I'm a white guy. The listeners don't know that. You guys could know that. Well, with, so- <laughs> with, with sourdough, right, right, right. people have a little bit of idea. As a white, as a white guy raising kids of color, right? Yeah. You know, you think about it. Wasn't part of my consciousness. I mean, I didn't have to fucking worry about cops harassing me simply because of the skin color of my skin and my kids may have to i mean they, they will you know what i mean so how do you you know you know so these are things that you know thankfully my wife being a woman of color like you know we talk about these things you know we're you know we're getting through it but the point is it's just that like you know like my dad for example like my dad's my dad didn't have a dad right so his dad died when he was a baby and then my grandmother married my dad's stepdad, who was uh, alcoholic and who was abusive, right? So my dad, his example of being a good dad was to not drink, stay married, and be a provider for his children because that's what he never had, right? right. So my dad, and my dad's a big dude. My dad's like 6'4", like 260, you know, like he was a super athlete, the whole thing. So, and he was like, so he's alpha male, you know what I mean? So his idea of being a good dad was like being provider, staying sober, you know, that whole thing. Right. And, you know, it wasn't like he was we weren't close. He was like this authoritative kind of I feared him. Yeah. Kick right? your ass. You know, you know, but my kids did, don't did, fear me. But how did that shape you? I mean, not to be too. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, analytical. I mean, you know, look, my work ethic comes from him. That's it. That's the bottom line. And my dad and I are probably way more similar than we realized at the time. Um, we're way closer now than we were then. We went to blows on some very crit- when I started dating black women. My because my dad was from the south, right? And he moved to Chicago outside Chicago. Met my mom. We was in high school, 
So when I started dating women of color in college, he thought it was just like a fling. Like he was like, you know, eh, you know, it's probably just a face. <laughs> <Experiment over. laughs> he, he didn't know. He never heard that phrase. Once you go black. <laughs> and so when I started dating seriously, you know, you know, like he, you know, he's like talks of shit. And I was like, okay, dude, you know, like you're going to figure this out or you're going to lose a son. I said that literally. And I mean, I'm summarizing two years of like going head to head and, you know, much to his credit, he figured it out and he loves his grandkids and he loves his daughter-in-law and he fucking changed. Like my dad is proof an old dog can learn new tricks. Right. But how did it shape me? Well, it shaped me in all kinds of ways. And I think that, you know, his biases, his racism, his, you know, whatever his all over the years made me a more open empathetic person you know curious about the world curious about See, so even the negatives to some extent became positive 100 percent. and you know but 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 also you know what i loved about your story with your dad like your dad was a teacher you know my dad wasn't a teacher because he he he, te- he taught by example right his he never had a teacher so he wasn't a teacher but he and i watched him and i think those values of of being loyal, of being responsible, of being, you know, proud of your work and doing a good job. And, you know, those totally got in, into me. You know what I mean? But my dad was also a hard ass. I feared him. I respected the hell out of him. You know, and if I, you know, if I got out of line, he fucking checked me. You know, now I'm not doing that with my kids. You know what I mean? I don't know that my kids respect me the same way I respected my dad at this time. Oh, but they're super young. I think. I think for me, the teenage years is when it starts, right? And then I think my dad, we talk about this now, but he figured out like, oh, you thrive on rebellion. So I'm going to use that to my advantage with you. Like, oh, you want to be an artist? You're not good enough. Instead of you want to be an artist? No, that's a career that you might starve. He used the good enough thing. And that was like psychologically brilliant. Oh, yeah, totally. Because he wasn't saying you can't do it. it. He was saying... You're just not good enough. Prove me wrong. And with my sister, it was different. With my sister, it was, oh, you want to be an artist? Well, you should just marry someone that will provide for you. <laughs> and that got under her oh, skin. Yeah. yeah. And now he's like, I was playing both of you like violins. Yeah. Back then, we honestly, my mom's like, I don't know if he was. Like, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Might be revisionist history, yeah, right? I think, I think he's looking now going literally, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing that. Well, here's the, I now, think, you as yeah. a dad, like, how are you approaching it? Well, what I tell people, because I, I have twin boys. Yeah. They're 20 years old now, and a daughter who's 18. She's my youngest. She's in college. So they're all Dude, in, co- they're all in college now. How old are and you? you survived I'm, the teenage I'm, years? I'm 25. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what I raising twin boys, right? To me, the boys are easy. Because as long as they know you can kick their ass, it doesn't matter. They, you could do whatever the hell you want because, you know, as long as you kick their ass, they'll be scared of you. They'll listen to you. You know, not that we're advocating, uh, or, or you'll kick their ass, you know. But with a daughter, Jesus, no idea how to do that. Because I told my wife, I've never had a daughter, I always had a little woman in the house. Because since she was, since she could walk or talk, she was running things, you know, running things. I'd come home, she was three years old. I'd come home, and her and my wife are yelling at each other like this, pointing at each other in the middle of the of the kitchen. And I walk into this scene like, what is going on? They're talking to a three-year-old. And my wife's like, I'm out of here. You take care of her. I can't take this no more. I'm out of here. And she'd leave to go take a walk because my daughter just, you know, you know. 
And the thing is with girls, it's just so freaking smart. Girls are always smarter than the boys, you know? But it's just like, it's like, it's, it's incredible how smart. Like my boys, my daughter would, would make them do things without them knowing. It was like Jedi mind tricks, you know? They would rearrange the whole room because she told them to. And then I'd walk in and I'd tell my daughter, why is the room all, I don't know, dad. I didn't, I didn't touch anything. And I said, what, what do you mean? What, what's going on? I don't know, dad. I didn't touch anything. And then I'd tell the boys, Come in, what are you guys doing? Oh, yeah, Viviana told us to move everything around and put the t- TV over there and move the couch. I'm like, it's a bunch of idiots. What are you listening to her for? <laughs> she's, young, she's, she's a year and a half younger than you. What the heck are you guys doing? I don't know, dad. I don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I mean, girls are just, girls just, are just so, so much smarter. And to me, just that's the difficulty for me as a father was just like, but I have great kids. And uh, thank God for my wife, because my wife is the one who knows how to do everything in terms of raising kids. But I mean, for me, the challenge had, had, had always been more of the daughter, just because I didn't understand her. Like I didn't like the boys I understood, you know, you know, one day I walk in and, and the the kids are the boys, the twin boys are, are writing with markers on the wall. And my wife's Bunch like, of taggers. my wife's like, yeah, come in here. What, look what's going on. I look and I go, what's the problem? <laughs> I don't see a problem. You know what they're, you know, I'm like, that's the last thing I could get them busted for tagging on a wall, you know, but at then, least they're doing that at home. <laughs> <laughs> but then my daughter would play games with the neighbor's daughter. Right. And then cut half her hair off with scissors. The na- cut the neighbor's hair off. The little girl had never had a haircut in her life. The, and she was like two years old. How long was the hair? The hair was like down to like her waist. <laughs> and my daughter cut half of it off. So those neighbors never spoke to us again. You know, shit like that, you know? And I was like, I don't, I don't know how, what do I do? What the hell do I do? I don't know. So I just brought my wife be like, yeah, you go extensions. I understand that. I don't understand that. You pay, that. You pay for, for extensions. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't know. So, but you know, it's, it's, it's been a thing. And, but the same thing where you're, you're talking about, like my father was like that. Like just one of the stories that always sticks out to me is I used to play baseball and soccer. I went on to play soccer, you know, all the way to semi-pro and stuff. But my dad wanted me to play baseball. Right, because he played baseball when he was younger, so he wanted me to be a base- baseball player. So when I was in high school, I didn't want to play baseball; I wanted to play soccer. Right, but just to appease him, I played one season of baseball. Right, and then he wanted me to be the shortstop, and I was like, "Dad, our shortstop's freaking awesome! Like, I'm center field; I'm starting center fielder because our our shortstop is awesome." He's like, "No, no, you should be shortstop." Whatever, Dad. So next year, I played again, and then I quit after that. I played two years. Right, so. Fast forward, I graduated from college. We're watching TV Saturday morning, a baseball game. And they're interviewing this guy who just made his first grand, you know, grand slam or whatever in, in major leagues. I said, Dad, see that guy on TV? That was our shortstop. Remember our shortstop that I, that I told you it was badass? That's him right there on TV. <laughs> and he goes, you know what? If you would have never quit, that would have been you on TV. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, how do I, you know, so, <laughs> so that's, you know, so I understand where you're coming from, you know what I'm saying? But as a father, it's, it's so much more harder. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, most of the time I think I'm doing it wrong and I probably am, but I do it anyways, you know, I'm like, this is all I know how to do. <laughs> so you just hope, hope that, that it, that it lands, you know? And the other thing is being an artist, you know, like, my parents didn't care. They didn't go to college either, but they just wanted me to get a degree. They're like, we don't care what you major in, just go to college. So, you know, got a, a degree in fine art. They were like, cool, whatever. We don't care. <laughs> you got a degree. That's good. So now I have kids who 
you know, especially my son, one of my sons is very, art, very uh, musical, musically inclined. And he didn't want to major in music in college. And I'm like, dude, what's wrong with you? Right. You love music. You're like awesome at music. How come you don't want to do music? You know? And so one day he finally told me like, well, I see how hard you work and I don't want to have to work that hard. <laughs> you know, like I know how hard it is to be in, in, in this field, you know? And I'm like, oh shit. And I say, well, you know, there's other kinds of jobs or whatever, blah, blah. And eventually now, now he's, he's changed his major. Now he's a recording engineer is, just, is what he's studying. You know, you don't have to just be a musician to, you know, cause he's like, there's no jobs. I'm not going to make any money as a musician. And I say, you know, most of the people that I went to college with aren't doing what they went to college for, you know? So while you're in school, just have a fucking good time and learn at what you love to do, you know? And I, and I was like, you know, it's weird because here I am encouraging my son to be a musician <laughs> where most people- Unheard of. Unheard of, right? Like most, yeah. of, most of his friends are like, oh, yeah, you know, my dad doesn't want me to do anything with music or art or anything, you know? And here I'm encouraging him and it's because at the end of the day, I want him to be happy and I want him to, to you know, do what he loves. You should have encouraged him to be a dancer. Yeah. No. <laughs> dancer. Well, and you know, you know what I'm finding? Like, yeah. I, I've been giving talks at inner city stuff with specifically Latino kids. Yeah. And the resentment that happens in the family, especially with immigrant kids, where they're like, I risked my life to come to this country. Right. You're going to be an artist? You're going to take a chance <laughs> on this right. legacy? Doctor, lawyer, accountant. Right. Right. Well, that's it. So it seems to me like being an artist is an act of rebellion in the Latino community. And it starts in at home, because yeah. parents, you know, parents are going no. Well, in the in the immigrant community, right, right. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are first generation American from India or Italy or, you know, whatever country, Germany, Poland, whatever, and same thing. Their families want them to be a doctor, a lawyer, or accountant, and or a teacher, or so you know what I mean. But like something that's stable, whatever. And especially if you come from a country where being an artist is not even a sustainable thing. So it's like, what? If you, if someone from our country couldn't do it, what makes you think you can make that here? Well, and by the way, like, you know, America is the country of like, do what you love, do your passion, you know, and maybe that's even a generation, maybe that is like a Gen X thing. I think it started maybe with Gen X, but this idea that, you know, you should do what you love. There's a passion, you know, whatever, you know, that's a new idea too. That is truly, I think, a hallmark of a, of a wealthy country, right? Who, you know, you can fucking push button, drive through anything, get what you want. Only then do you have the luxury of being able to say, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to go, you know, be a massage therapist or whatever. Yeah, yeah. me too. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like when I went to school, it was the world is shitty. You're going to have to work crazy hard. Yep. And if you're lucky, you might make it. That's right. Hell yeah. That was it. And there was no like, follow your dreams and everything will work out. I think our generation, I think Gen Xers are are very pragmatic. Right generation that's the perfect word yeah well it's funny because my mom keeps telling me one day you're gonna get lucky mijo one day just keep and i'm like mom i'm, I'm 47 years old what are you talking about one day i'm gonna get lucky <laughs> jesus <laughs> you know she's like, like yeah uh, you know i see all these people all the time and they get so lucky to be you know like a, like a, you're guy, like a 25 year overnight success yeah yeah you know my mom's always like mijo put it on channel 34 right now they're showing this guy and he he got lucky like they discovered him and now he's a famous millionaire artist, but he's not even that good. <laughs> you, I hope I, every day I pray and one day you're going to get that lucky. But you know, part of what we're getting at is 
Yeah. I'm like, mom, I don't have that kind of luck. Yeah. But part of what you're getting at, it reminds me of an article I read the other day, which was really about concentrating on growth over goals. So when you're growth focused, you don't care about, I mean, you're going to make the goals because you're focused on growth and you're learning the new skills and you're learning the new, you know, tools or whatever. That's the thing. I think our generation, I don't know, maybe I'm, but you know, we, we're not afraid of work. We're, we're, we're pragmatic and, and I don't failure know, I is we're, real. Yeah. It's where we embrace it. You know, it's, it's fine. Yeah. It's I mean, fine. I, I talk about how, you know, a lot of people use the carrot of success in front of them, right? They're chasing this thing to be successful. And with my situation, it was the opposite. It was, I had the monster of fear behind me. And so I use that to motivate me. So it wasn't, I want to get to the successful part. It was, I don't want to get, I don't want to get swallowed. And that, like, if you can surf the, the fear and if you can use the fear to motivate you, I think our generation kind of grew up with that. Fear of failure is real. So why not use it to your advantage? Right. You know, and as, as an immigrant son too, you know, I'm the, the oldest of three. So, you know, all the weight was on my shoulders. You know, my parents were like kicking my ass. I had to, I had to do everything. You know, I couldn't fuck up, you know, all that shit. And so when the first time I got my dad, my dad found out that I started, that I was tagging and I was doing graffiti. The first thing he thought is I was trying to be a cholo. I was trying to be a gang gangster. And it almost destroyed him because he was like, you know, here we are coming to this whole country, this and new country, you're doing, and right? you're going to be a fucking thug, fucking cholo. And I'm like, no, dad, I'm an artist, you know? And it's so funny because, you know, to this day we have this argument because, you know, he said, well, then I'm going to kick you out of the house, you know? If you're just going to be spray, I said, well, then you kick me out of the house because I'm an artist and I'm going to keep spray painting, you know, it's my art. And I remember even to this day, he's like, why do you always tell people that lie? Yeah. <laughs> I never, I never, I was never going to kick you out of the house. I said, dad, when you're 16 years old and your dad tells you he's going to kick you out of the house, you never forget that. That's in your mind, right? Like forever, like imprinted, you know? And so, so it's one of those things where, you know, I had that also like, like I want to make my parents proud and, you know, I know how hard they work to get here. So I got to be a success and I got to kick ass and I'm not going to let anything get in my way, you know? And that was my motiv motivation a lot yeah, of the time. The weight you know? of your yeah, family. Exactly. Can be really positive right if you if you allow it if you allow it right yeah and then when things go wrong we don't blame the family right we blame ourselves right which is it might be a you know upbringing catholic like yeah where yeah. it's always our fault but i mean mexicans are weird yeah <laughs> but, I, yeah. but I, I will say especially now i'm 44 so i, I i'm trying to figure out what went right what went wrong that i can talk to people and give advice to and I always, you know, people ask me, especially in schools, if you could go back in time, what would you tell student you? What do you think you should have done more of? What do you think you should have done less of? And the lie answer is don't party as much, concentrate more, work on your skills more. But that's bullshit. The truth of the matter is all those fuck ups, all those parties, all the bad things, all those things mark and form you. And you don't learn anything from success. You learn from failure. So that's how you get better, by failing. So the more you fail, the better you get. I think that's part of the problem with the kids now, you know, and I see it with my kids because they're totally happy just being in the room on the phone. So, you know, just scrolling through their phone, maybe playing video games, maybe listening to music, 
maybe just whatever but they're not into like going and experiencing shit you know and that's the sad part for me because it's like dude we were you know riding bikes all day long and running around and getting beat up and beating up people and <laughs> getting chased and getting into stuff and those life experiences form you yeah and they and, you know and they make you like uh understand yourself understand people and like my kids are such bad they don't know how to judge people like um, like judge a character judge a character Horrible. yeah that comes with experience they, they, they don't know they're like oh like how did you know that guy was lying dad you know hey dad how did you know that, that guy was full of shit you know i'm like you know it's one of those things that's kind of scary because then you have these kids who, who they don't and when they do fail oh my god it's the end of the world well i think you know our society and our culture is filling our people up with falsehoods and unrealistic expectations right because you know, I'm all for swinging for the fences. Hell, I've been swinging for the fences my whole life, okay? And I've struck out a hell of a lot. But you know what I've also done? Got a ton of base hits, right? And it's the fucking base hits, right, that wins the game because you're driving in runs and you're, you know, and, you know, will I ever hit it over the fence? I don't know. I'm still swinging, right? But guess what? At 48, I look back on a life full of base hits, it's been a fucking good game and I've been a real player in it. Right. So I think having realistic expectations about what we can do with our lives, what's possible, what, you know, and not being afraid of the failure, but also just being like realistic about the hard work and the time it takes and all this bullshit about instant success, you know, 10 steps for this, read this book. You know, we are fetishized. We, we fetishize. What's the word? Fetishize productivity now. Right. It's like, how can you be more productive? How can you be more productive? And it's like this idea of like, you know, well, I just have to work harder. I have to work harder. No, actually, maybe you have to work smarter. Maybe you have to love yourself a little more. Maybe you need to like get fucking eight hours of sleep a night or what, whatever it is. You know what I mean? I get really worked up because it just feels like a lot of folks have unrealistic expectations these days and they need to. You know, they, I don't know. They just need to, 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 to stay in the game, be consistent, show up every fucking day, you know, and pay attention. You know, you were talking about, you were saying something about, you know, the, the, the losses, Jorge, you know, learning from the losses too. I don't think people are fucking paying attention. I've, I can only speak for myself, but like I, my whole life, I have been a, an observer and a watcher and paying attention to what's ahead of me, what's behind me, and what's to the left and to the right of me. And I'm learning all the fucking time. I don't know. I mean, now with kids just go on Google and they think they fucking know, you know, because they watch a YouTube video. <laughs> well, and, you know? and like you said, the social media fetishizes the peak of the iceberg. Right. right? right like, exactly. Look at all the success, yeah. Yeah. but no one wants to do, no yeah. wants to do all this stuff underneath. No. And to some extent, the, we live in a world of immediate gratification and yeah. I graduated from college and I want to do my own company. It's like, what? You got to do all the stuff before you get to the, to the thing. And I get asked, especially in colleges now, like, Hey, so what's the trick? Like, <laughs> What, what, is there like a like a secret way to yeah. to get your thing going right away, or is there like a shortcut I can take? And they always whisper yeah. it, and I'm always like, "Dude, yeah. you just have to do the like." There's no way right. around it, right. right? Well, you know the I use a right. lot of camping analogies, right? And the thing about it is, if you truly are trying to do something fresh, new, and innovative, 
there's no fucking trail. Like you are breaking that trail and that is a slog and that is hard and it's dangerous and it's exhausting and it's easier for the people behind you because you're the one fucking breaking the trail. But that's what true artists do that are realizing their visions that are, that have never been realized before. And it's, and if you're not up for that, there's no fucking shortcuts is my point. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to go, yeah, sure. The shortest, well, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Fine. You want to try to find that, you know, shoot a straight bearing, so to speak. But at the end of the day, you know, it's going to be a scenic route. I mean, you're going to, you know, you, and, and, and I, but I think it it sounds so cliche because I mean, there are so many like, you know, adages and proverbs and bumper stickers and stuff. But I mean, for me, it really always has been about trying to really embrace the journey of it because that's it, man. I mean, that's all we have is our fucking lives. And if you're not enjoying every day and trying to uh, embrace the humanity, embrace, you know, the the learning, the hardships, all of it, I don't know. I think you're missing out. Well, veering back into the, into art. So I had my first ever, solo art show when i was 41 right 2016 yeah and i had been in little group shows and i was studying i was literally going okay you only get your first art show once and i had heard from lots of artists saying if you don't sell well your first one you're fucked yeah because no one forgets that yeah and if you do well that's the opposite right things would go really well (laughs) <laughs> so when I got called by Greg Estelante, yeah. he to some I would I call him my art world papa. Yeah. He said, "Hey, I want to I want to do a show with you. Nine paintings. That's how. how Nine that's paintings. How, yeah, that's, that's how I started. Yeah. That's how. You, and I was like, Greg, I'm you know I'm busy. I'm developing yeah. this new movie, and he's like, just nine paintings. Yeah, that's it. You can do nine paintings, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I can do nine <laughs> paintings. And he said, you have one year. <laughs> You're like, piece of cake. Piece of cake. At that point, I said, I'm going to study. I'm going to study. I'm going to look at all the art shows that have done well in the yeah. last three years. I'm going to figure out what. how do people make a living? How do they get to do their art? What kind of art do they do? What kind of art sold? I analytically tried to break it all down. You're looking the, for the trick. Yeah. Well, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't looking for the trick, but I was looking for the patterns. Yeah, exactly. Right? No, yeah. And I was looking for wow. how do I how do I approach this artistically? I There are things that I want to do, but how do I not blindly go in and be selfish and just paint whatever the fuck I want and no one wants it? So I was like, how do I do what I want, but that people will buy? Strategic, because this is not a museum. This is a gallery. The goal of the gallery is to sell. And how do I not whore myself out so that it's super obvious? And how do I make it personal? And how do I make it something that's uh, going to say something about what's happening in the world and all those things? So then I broke that down and I you know, went on Instagram and I looked up stuff and Greg told me, here's what you need to do. Do three giant pieces that no one will buy. Yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah. He's like, yeah, you make three giant pieces that are $10,000. And guess what? Those will make the $2,000 pieces seem affordable. And then you're going to do silkscreen posters because people who can't afford a $2,000 painting are going to buy a silkscreen poster. And you'll probably make more from those silkscreen posters than you'll make from all those paintings. Then you scan all your paintings and you put them online and you sell reproductions of them. So I took word by word of what Greg said and I did it exactly like that. I 
studied and I went, okay, well, I want to make fun of all this border bootleg stuff that I love. So I'm going to paint Pokemon and Transformers and Mario Brothers and all this. I'm going to riff on pop culture. I'm going to Instagram tag all those things to different, those different communities. So people who like this will like the painting. And I ended up painting 57 paintings <laughs> in one year. From 9 to 57. From 9 to 57, I would paint 6 to 9 at a time, only two hours a night. I bought house, the cheapest house painting I could find, the cheapest canvases I could find, <laughs> the cheapest brushes I could find. Yeah. And I said, if I'm making stuff out of the bootleg border culture it's gotta all be it's gotta be authentic <laughs> and it's gotta be cheap and 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 i i can't just have a painting be cool it's gotta say something and it's gotta be funny because that's the thing that i love i i like art that's funny because i i think comedy is the best way to criticize society and you know what's more rebellious to authority than making fun of it so after i did all those things greg literally went i have no idea if any of this stuff will sell <laughs> that's perfect greg right and so oh, i started posting on twitter instagram <laughs> yeah. i started posting everywhere and oh. i started seeing what got the likes what didn't get the likes yeah. and i started literally doing you know movie test audience stuff where i want oh people like this people don't like that and i started mix and matching day of the opening i mean i ended up selling what was it 30 38 of the 57, yeah. one of the giant ones, book publisher showed up, loved the paintings, they did a book, yeah. they did postcards, I put all the paintings that sold online, and all of a sudden, LA Times reviewed it, yeah. and it became like a thing, yeah. and I literally went, okay, that was my first ever art show, I get it, <laughs> art world is just like every other part of the entertainment industry yeah so a little bit different right but you have to do the work you mm -hmm. got to be super smart about how you do things right. you got to be responsible and you have to do all the hard work of getting your voice out there right. as with everything else right. and i had heard for a long time oh the world the art world especially in la is very clicky and it's mostly rich kids who are just doing it on the side. And the galleries are basically the curators of who gets in and who gets out. No one wants Latino stuff, I was told. No one wants uh, comedy. No one wants, uh, if you come from the world of film or animation, they will look down on you. Right. Like, I heard all yeah, the negatives. Yeah, yeah, of course. When things sold, no one cared. No, yeah, that's right. As long as it sold. So, just like everywhere... Mm -hmm. No one's racist to the color green. <laughs> People love green. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when I realized, ah, okay, I get it. Yeah. It's just like everything. Well, you know, what's funny is um, my first solo show is completely, well, not completely the opposite, but kind of the opposite because uh, I had mine one year out of college. Graduated in 93, 94, I had my first solo show. It was had a, you done like multiple group shows? Yeah, at I had point? done group shows and stuff like that. But at the time, everyone was telling me, you know, graffiti doesn't sell. No one's going to buy graffiti. Graffiti belongs on the streets, all that shit. What year is this? This is uh, 94 when I had my oh, solo shit. show. So, yeah. So then I, I, I had a friend, Stash, who from ICU Art, who had a friend who had a head shop on Melrose. And he had an empty, vacant space where he was going to extend his shop. But it was still vacant. 
And so he's like, well, you can have a show here, you know, because real galleries didn't want to have graffiti in their in their galleries. So we had to have this like, you know, set up our own shop. And so I had the show. I had about 25, 26 paintings in the show. I sold 17. And I was like, holy shit, this is easy. Right? <laughs> Damn, what the hell? Is this? this is so easy. I've never sold 17 paintings ever again at any show since then, you know. But it was funny that it happened that way. Because I was a year out of college, if I if I wouldn't have sold anything, who knows what the hell I would have done, you know? Because but just because I sold all that stuff, I was like, piece of cake, I can do this all day long, and that just totally like yeah, you gave made me a three pointer on your first. Attempt. Yeah, and that was it. I'm like, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I'm going pro. Yeah, I'm this. I'm doing this. You know, and so it, it gave me the motivation to like, yeah. yeah, I'm on the I'm on the right path. You know, now I didn't know that most of the people who bought all my stuff were were drug dealers, and so. <laughs> You know, hey, the, the, you can't you can't judge who buys their stuff. Well, you know, that's the funny thing because you know I don't smoke weed. I never done drugs. And when I found out that all these drug dealers were were buying my stuff, I was kind of weird about it. I was kind of like, well, okay, whatever. You know, it, green is green, right? And so I was like, whatever. So then I I remember I telling my friend, hey, give me the guy's number. I want to thank him. One one guy bought like five paintings, right? Like one dude, right? And then I found out he was a drug dealer. I'm like, well, give me well, give me his pager, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> he never he never paged me back, right? He never called me back. I was like, oh, whatever. So a few months later, I found out that is he got raided by the FBI, and they took him in. And so those paintings, I don't know where they're at. Wow. <laughs> so the the good part is drug dealers will buy your art, but when their house gets raided, who knows where your art ends up? <laughs> that's the only that's the downside. See, of all right. <laughs> See, these are the kinds of uh, invaluable life lessons. <laughs> That we want to bring to the Not Real Art Conference on March 16th. There you go. That's a segue. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because you two are both featured speakers at our conference on March 16th. And it's that, you know, I think the, the attendees that are coming are stoked because they want to learn from you guys. Though so Talk about shortcuts. I mean, the shortcuts are like trying to listen to people that have been there, done it. Right. And try to glean those lessons. Right. And so at the conference, we're going to be talking about intellectual property. We're going to be talking about protecting it, licensing it, pitching it, marketing it, you know, the works. And so I'm really grateful that you guys were able to come today and give a little bit of taste. Are you guys pumped about the conference? Oh, yeah. I'm super, I'm psyched, man. I still don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I, I'll figure out something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a week from Saturday. So Well let you know Friday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this fucking guy. I'm telling you, man. It's a good thing I've known him for like what, fucking eighteen years or some shit. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I know his style. Yeah. You know? he he's gonna show up and it's gonna be the bomb, you know. He'll, he'll make he'll stress me out for a week, but you know. I have like a PowerPoint with all like <laughs> I've written a script. Like So well here's the thing. Yeah. I had a college professor who told me that just that he says, however you are in college, that's how you're gonna be as a professional. Like, so if you're the guy that's always pulling all nighters, you're gonna be pulling all nighters in your in your professional life. If you're the guy who's prepared and studies and does this and does that, that's how you're gonna do it. And is that is that how you were? Were you pretty methodical like that? In, yeah, in, I was super methodical. And, yeah. and honestly, in college, I thought, man, if I work really hard, I bet you work is easier. And it's the opposite. <laughs> Success yeah. is hard. It's fucking hard, man. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you're never successful, right? Like, yeah, yeah, you're never satisfied. You always want you're more. You're never satisfied. So fall. I always say, fall in love. With the process, not with the result. Well, exactly, right. I mean, because that's to me like 
if you love the process, then you're successful, right? Because you're loving every day. You wake up every day enjoying what you're about to do. And and for painting, to me, I enjoy the the process of painting more than the the thing being done. Whereas in writing, I hate writing, but I love having written. Well, like, see, I'm the opposite. I, yeah, well, number yeah. one, I haven't written anything, but painting, I hate painting. I, I I hate sitting in the studio painting for hours and hours and hours. I freaking hate it. I can't wait till I finish the freaking painting and sign it. Wow. Like once I finish it, I'm like, oh good, I finally finished that fucking piece, you know. And I usually paint pretty fast. Yeah. But like, I don't like the process. Dude, the I, the I, only I, process I, I like. Paint, I'm like the, the only I'm process like <laughs> making love to these things. Oh, no, man, I can't wait to get it get it over with. But you know, but but, but you know what the difference is? I love painting murals. When I'm on the street painting. I love that. I could paint for a week straight, like non nonstop. But when I'm in the studio alone, ah oh man, I hate it. I hate wow. it. So the process, I don't like the process. You know. How much do you pre-plan? Like, do you see it in your head, or do you? Uh, it did different ways, but mostly I see it in my head, do a quick sketch, and then just go for it. I always think the art is in doing it, so I don't over-prepare. You know, because even if I do a, an exact rendering. Like it always comes off different, you know. And to me, that's the art is actually when I'm doing it, but I don't always enjoy the process. <laughs> I mean, everyone's different. Hey, geniuses! I hate to tell you this, we're gonna have to wrap up. <laughs> oh man, I know you get. Well, you, we, we'll continue at the conference. We're, yeah. we're gonna continue at the conference. <laughs> I want to thank Jorge Gutierrez. Yes, Scott. thank you, sir. Man, thank you guys. Thank uh, you guys for having me, brother. So, for our listeners who want to find you on social, where yet? I am Mixopolis on Twitter and Instagram, and. That's the easiest way to find me. That's great. And when's your uh, when's your movie coming out on Netflix? So my uh, limited movie series comes out hopefully summer 2021. And then let's see what else can I plug. I have an art show at Gallery Nucleus with my wife. It's just like a book signing art show in May for Cinco de Mayo. Oh, right on. Right on. Well, we'll be there for sure. And uh, guys, this has been a blast. We'll see you on March 16th. And uh, to our listeners, be sure to uh, comment and uh, like and subscribe and all that good stuff. And we'll see you on March 16th. We're out. See you guys. Peace. Peace.